Well, since 1993, from the beginning of Bear Creek Bible Church, so far, we've studied 45 or 44 books of the Bible. Zephaniah will be number 45. And uh, a couple of them I've done twice or am doing twice. The book of, uh, book of Ephesians was done twice. Joshua, I think I did twice here. And after I get back from my sabbatical later this year, um, we're go- I'm going to do the book of Colossians, which I did like in the late 90s. And so I was chatting with Kyle Davison, our youth pastor, the other day, and I came to the conclusion that, hey, anything that we taught in the first, like, 10 years of our ministry is junk, and so don't redo it. So it's going to be a complete rework. Don't worry about it. Very few of you will remember it because very few of you were here then. And so we are starting our 45th book, the book of Zephaniah. So Bear Creek Bible Church, just so you know, those of you who are new to the church, those of you who are checking us out, those of you who might be your first week, we're very glad you're here with us. One of the features of Bear Creek Bible Church is that we do expositional preaching. That means that we go through the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And it's the best, it's the most natural, most, uh, you could say, organic, normal way to understand the Word of God, because it's how He formulated His Word to us. So instead of going in and chopping it up and just picking a verse here and a verse there, we just go through natural context, normal reading, and try to understand what God's Word is telling us. And so as we understand the cultural background, the historical background, and all of those things, um, we're compelled to ask a question, okay, well then what do we do with it? And there is always a lot to do with the Word of God. We're called on not just to be hearers of the Word, but be doers also. So therefore, every one of us, including myself, should respond to the Word of God with different applications, different changes in our lives. Either it's something we believe, either it's an attitude or it's behavior, we're all compelled to respond to the Word of God. And so the Word of God is a grace. It's a gift to us. And so therefore, we should treat it highly and realize that it is not only relevant, but it is also applicable to us and authoritative to us as well. So you and I, we could say, are actually obligated to follow the Word of God. And that's a good thing because God gives us his graces to protect us and also to provide for us. Amen? Okay, we're on the same page there. Good. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right, (laughs) if we weren't on the same page. So this is the last of three prophets who directed their writings to the southern kingdom of Judah. And we, a few months ago, we studied the book of Joel, another minor prophet. And I say minor prophet not because they are of less importance than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, but rather because they are all short. And so Joel and Micah are short books. Joel wrote his book around 830 years before the time of Christ. Micah wrote his book around 780 B.C. And then in chronological sequence, you could say, uh, that this book, Zephaniah, is one of the next books. So the Old Testament can be intimidating. Believe me, I'm there with you. It's probably about 60% of the entire Bible, but it covers thousands of years of history. 
And so it can be very intimidating. It's different types of literature. There's historical literature. There's poetic literature. There's prophetic literature as well. And so it's like it can be real, really mind-boggling. And so therefore, it's good to kind of take a 30,000-foot view. When an airplane flies, it flies at roughly 30,000, give or take, a couple thousand. And so you, they, you can see over the landscape. And that's kind of what we're going to do over the next like couple minutes just to see an overview of the Old Testament. So that way, you have a shot, at least, of pegging Zephaniah. Okay, where does he fit in? What happened before and what happened after? And so, let's do that journey now. So there are nine periods of Old Testament history. Okay, nine periods. And so, you have creation, of course, that is revealed to us in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, but then also in the book of Genesis. In fact, in chapter 12, a lot happens between chapters 1 and 11, and um, patriarchs is one of them in chapter 12, where Abram or Abraham is given a covenant, a package of promises by God and say, I'm going to make you into a very important nation. And so, uh, and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, but you will be my people. And so Abraham was the first patriarch, followed by uh, Isaac and Jacob after then the 12 sons of Jacob, of course. They wound up looking for food and so they wound up in Egypt. And in Egypt, they became slaves. And so God delivered them through the miracle of uh, the plagues, of course, but also by the dividing of the Red Sea. We remember that from Moses, but then also it's because of his leadership that Israel was allowed to depart from this land of bondage of Egypt through the Exodus. And so that is the third period of Israelite history. But then that goes right into the period of the conquest, because God not only allowed his people to escape slavery, but he wanted to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And so through the leadership of Joshua, the Israelites were allowed to penetrate into the land of Canaan and conquer most of the tribes. And I say most of because that was one of the mistakes they made. They didn't conquer the entire land. They left some of the Canaanite peoples in that land. And so um, they conquered the land. But then right after that, Israel needed some form of government. So God actually gave them a form of government where they had administrative leaders and they were called judges. Judges, we think of judges as, as uh, men and women who sit behind a big desk in a courtroom. And they did that too, but they also had a lot of administrative duties. And so they were kind of like almost like prime ministers or presidents in a way, meaning they were judges, but their sons did not become judges after them. And so once they finished, then God would go on to someone else. So the period of judges was really important for Israel's development. But then they looked around them and they said to themselves, we want to be just like all of the other nations and tribes and people groups around us. We want to have a monarch. We want to have a king. We want to have a human king to lead us. And God thought, well, you've had a king all along, and that king was me, Yahweh. But you want a human king? And this goes under the category of be careful what you ask for, because mm, they got Saul. And Saul was not a great king. He was an effective leader in a certain way, but he was a, not a good man. But then through God's grace, Israel got their best king, a very flawed man who was not a great family man, but an effective military man and leader and visionary, David. And that was the peak of the Israelite experience under King David. So they had a united kingdom. Um, we had Saul, of course, then David, and then Solomon. 
But then through different issues and different divisions, Israel divided between north and south. Israel to the north and then Judah to the south. But then ultimately, because of their division and because of their determination to continue to disobey God through the oppression of people, through finances and so on, stealing their land, kind of some of the subjects we looked at in the book of Micah. And then in addition to that, they were determined also to continue to worship false gods, the gods of the Canaanites that they did not displace from the land of Canaan. They were still there. And so as a result, Israel disobeyed God again and again and again, and they became very weak. And so in about 722 B.C., Israel in the north was swallowed up by Assyria. And then through a series of invasions and repulses and so on, the southern kingdom about 140 years later in 586 B.C. eventually succumbed to Babylon, which was ultimately swallowed up by Persia. But the Israelites were in exile in Assyria and in mostly Babylon. And then through the Persian king gave them the right to return to their land. Of course, Jerusalem was still in devastation. Um, and so as a result, God allowed Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem, return to the land, rebuild the temple, and also rebuild the walls around the city. And then that brings us to the final period of Israelite history. So let's look at some dates because the dates help us kind of form a backbone, so that way you can wrap your brain around just a very basic outline of the Old Testament. And so if you can remember four names and four dates, that will help you understand pretty much the entire Old Testament. And so first we start off with Abraham in 2,000 years before Christ. So B.C. stands for before Christ. And so you have the time of Abraham and the patriarch. So if you can remember, Abraham 2,000. Then, roughly 500 years later, and these are just estimates, 500 years later is actually maybe a little bit more than that, um, 1500 B.C. would be the time of Moses, okay, the time of the Exodus. So you have Abraham, 2000, Moses, 1500, and then about 1,000 years before Christ, you have another important figure in Israelite history, King David. So David, 1000. And then, if you go forward in time a little bit more, because since you're moving forward in time and you're looking at negative numbers in a sense from the zero timeline, when you move forward, the numbers get smaller, okay? And just so, because some of you may not understand that, and that's fine. Now you do. And so, in roughly 500 years before the time of Christ, you have Daniel, who was a man, a prophet, who was in exile. So you have Abraham, Moses, David, and Daniel, okay, 2,000, 1,500. So is that something you can memorize? Is that something you could get in your brain? And everything else wraps around those four time periods, okay? So let's look at another easy-to-understand chart. That's what I'm all about here, right? So you have all of the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, the long ones and the short ones, and you see Joel is here in roughly 830 years before the time of Christ, and then about 50 years later, 60 years later, Micah around 770 or 780 years before the time of Christ, and then we jump to now Zephaniah. They were all primarily written to the southern kingdom, and that's important. Joel and Micah, when they wrote, 
the northern kingdom still existed. But it was about to be swallowed up by Assyria. With Zephaniah, the northern kingdom is gone. But there's still the southern kingdom. So he only writes to Judah. And that's his target audience. That's the primary audience. But indirectly, but yet still authoritatively, he's writing also to us. Why? Because we have the same hearts as the people of Judah had. So there are still things that we need to change. We need to adjust given the principles that are revealed in the book of Zephaniah. So you have that time period that is also helpful in understanding. So we've looked at the three books in chronological sequence, you could say, pretty accurately. So here's another way to look at it, real simple. There's the northern kingdom. You guys better get right with God or you're going to be swallowed up. Oh, it happened. Yeah. Judah's still with us, though. We're still there. There's Joel and there's Micah and there's Zephaniah. You guys, really, uh, Josiah, he was just king and he issued for some really good reforms. Will you please listen to King Josiah? He has some really good things for us to learn and to do. Uh, no, we don't want to listen to him. Okay, then you get swallowed up too, southern kingdom. And that's what, of course, would happen. But from Zephaniah's perspective, he thought it was still possible to turn things around and that God's people would have the capacity to change their minds about their sinful ways. But we know that they didn't, and so we know what happened is that they too would be invaded by Babylon and they would come and knock down the walls of the city. And such a sad thing to read about, the destruction of the temple. The place that God had set aside so that way we could hear from him and we could commune with him at the mercy seat. That was destroyed by the hordes of Babylon, Babylonians who came and conquered the city and who stole the Ark of the Covenant. So that's a little bit of history there that I hope is helpful to you. So Micah wrote between 622 B.C. and 612 B.C. So he's way after the other two prophets that we studied. So what are some observations and a simple-to-understand outline of the book of Zephaniah? It's just three chapters. It's a short book. What are some observations, some unique things about this book, Zephaniah? It's a lot like Micah and Joel. It's a lot like those two prophecies. They all wrote within basically 100 years of each other. Uh, they had basically the same target audience, but they had different, very different writing styles. And they also had a lot of unique characteristics about them as well, even though they go and talk about the same theme repetitively. So what about Zephaniah? Well, his name means that God hides or he who God hides or shelters. And so God protects us. Zephaniah was unique among all of the major and minor prophets because he's the only one who claims some kingly heritage. His great-great-grandfather was King Hezekiah. And we'll learn that from verse 1. He wrote primarily to the upper echelons of society in Judah. If you remember, Micah was the blue-collar prophet. He wrote, he was the populist. He wrote to the people and was concerned about the oppression of the people by those who were wealthy and powerful. But Zephaniah is just the opposite. He is the man who has a kingly heritage, 
And he wrote to the judges, to the priests, to the teachers of the law of his time. He wrote to a different target audience inside the same country of Judah. Most likely, he also wrote from the capital city of Jerusalem during the reign of King Josiah. Um, He has a very different writing style, too. And you'll see this in the English real clearly, even, where the others are a little more poetic, perhaps a little more flowery and symbolic. Zephaniah is just right to the point. He's direct. And some writers even say that he's even graphic in his details. So completely different writing styles between those men. What about an outline of the book of Zephaniah? Well, it's only three chapters, and different parts of this I've gotten from other people's outlines, so I didn't come up with this by myself, but I did edit it and put it together. Um, You could say the first chapter plus three verses is, look within that judgment is going to happen to us. Uh, It's it's imminent. It could happen at any time, unless we change our mind about the way we're doing things. But then also, God's judgment is not just going to be close by. It's going to be also with your neighbors. So it's going to affect Ammon. It's going to affect Moab and Edom to the east. God's going to deal with those nations as well. Then what about look beyond? Well, God is a God of covenants. He's a God who makes promises. And he's also a God who fulfills those promises. Because even though... Israel continued to disappoint the heart of God, God would still fulfill the promises that he made to Israel. And one day, all of those promises would be fulfilled. And so that look beyond is even future tense for us as well. As Zephaniah frequently talks about this period of time, and we saw in Micah as well as Joel call the day of the Lord. It's in stark contrast to the day of man, when it seems like mankind is the one who's in charge. Mankind is the one who's calling the shots. Mankind is the one who's making the decisions and making things happen. But at some point in time, we will enter a phase called the day of the Lord. The big capital D day of the Lord is yet to come, but there are a lot of smaller Lowercase d, days of the Lord in the Old Testament. And they had two simple characteristics. And those characteristics were that God judges his enemies finally. And you might say, man, if I were in charge, I already would have done that. But God is patient. Amen? From our perspective, we think sometimes maybe he's a little bit too patient. But God is long-suffering. So there is the judgment of his enemies, but then there's also the blessing of his people. So in all of these days of the Lord, whether the lowercase d days of the Lord or whether they are future tense, big d day of the Lord, God blesses his people and judges his enemies finally. And so that's a brief outline of the book of Zephaniah. What about some themes and purposes of this short book? Well, Judah did not follow Josiah's reforms, so injustice and idolatry just continued on. King Josiah's reforms were kind of shallow and superficial. They didn't really take root, 
but they were basically well-intended. It was to bring Israel back to God. Love God. Follow Him. Actually obey Him because He is our ultimate authority, so therefore obey Him. But Israel rejected it. So injustice and idolatry, all forms of it, continued on. Another feature of the short book is that Yahweh is sovereign. He is in control, and he's also a righteous judge. We'll see that in verses 2 and 3 today. Another thing we'll see in verses 2 and 3 is that Zephaniah reveals the dark side of God's love. What? Dark side of God's love? Yeah, I'll explain what I mean by that. It also highlights man's wickedness, but also God's willingness to receive the repentant. And that's a common thing that we have with Israel and Judah. Uh, we, we have the same wicked tendencies. Um, very few of us have fulfilled our evil uh, potential. There's the Adolf Hitlers, the Idi Amins, the Saddam Husseins who have perhaps come really close to fulfill their potential for evil. Most of us haven't. We have a great capacity for it. But yet, we are wicked and prone to sinfulness. We are prone to wander. But then, at the same time, there is God's willingness to receive us back if we change our mind about those fallen strategies of life. So, that is... So some of the themes and purposes of the book of Zephaniah. So join with me. We're just going to cover a couple of minutes. We're going to look at the first three verses here of Zephaniah chapter 1. And this is what it says. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And so an interesting thing here is he says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. And so Zephaniah didn't come up with this prophecy. This is a prophecy that somehow, mysteriously, God gave to Zephaniah, just like the other 29 or so writers of the Old and New Testament. God gave them the words. He didn't write them down through handwriting on the wall or skywriting. But he used that author's personality and skill to be able to communicate the words that God was putting on the heart of that prophet or that apostle. And so when I saw this, when I saw the verse 1 there, I immediately thought of Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. It gives us, pulls back the curtains a little bit, lets us see some of the mystery demystified as to how the word of God is penned. And it says there from Peter, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Ah, so we know what it's not. It's not just, Hey, I want to write this because this is what I think should be written. And it's not that, but let's go on. It says for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, Though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So one extreme would be to say, oh yeah, the authors are the ones that came up with the ideas and the actual words, and they wrote those things down. But then the other extreme would be the exact exact opposite of that, where God gave them the actual words to say, and they just 
basically were were secretaries who wrote down what God gave them. It's somewhere in between where God carried them along, used their own personalities, used their own writing style, used their own skills and experiences, and then the product of the Word of God actually came forth. And it's a it's a mystery as to how that comes together, but yet we know what it's not, but we know more so the way it is. It is a blending of God's heart with the skill and personalities of those writers. I mean, when you read, you know, some of the original languages and so on, the Hebrew and the Greek, you can see the different writing. But it's also in English, you can see it very clearly that the Apostle John had a very simple writing style compared to the writer of the book of Hebrews, for example, a more complex writing style. And so and that's all through the whole Bible. Um, and so you can see their personalities and their skills and their writing styles come through the Word of God, but God gives them the content somehow. So, Zephaniah, as we know, was a great-great-grandson to King Hezekiah. And in verses 2 and 3, he talks about a future judgment that's huge. Look what verses 2 and 3 say. It says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, the wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So at some future period in time, we obviously know it didn't happen in Zephaniah's time. It hasn't happened to us like this yet, but it most certainly will happen. So from the get-go, from the beginning, right off the bat, Zephaniah is saying one day, The entire world is going to be decimated. That's what I'm prom, that's not what I'm promising just around the corner for Judah, but this is a devastation the likes of which humanity has not seen yet. And so let's let Peter chime in again because he's got some words to say about this. He uses that term also, the day of the Lord. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You see, There's some application that's implicit in even talking about something future tense like this. So since you know one day that the world's going to be destroyed like this, what, how should you live now? Live with expectation. Live in a positive fear of a reverent God. You know, maybe. Yeah, I think that's it. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed. It's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. I believe that Zephaniah and Peter are talking about the same future events. That's still even future tense for us as well. We need to be stirred up by this future event. So that's how he introduces his prophecy to the reader is by talking about the big destruction, the big legitimate judgment that will happen at one future point in time. Notice the created things in verse 3. Men, animals, birds, and fish. It is the reverse order of creation. And so this destruction will be like as if creation was being reversed. Um, this could be a remark referring to the tribulation period, right after the rapture and before the thousand-year reign of Christ. Personally, I believe it is. 
that Peter and Zephaniah are talking about the same tribulation period. See, at this point, when Zephaniah wrote this prophecy, Israel to the north was already gone, and soon the southern kingdom would also be gone, but ultimately it will all be gone, it will all be destroyed. But Zephaniah does an interesting thing here, because he talks about this great future big event, this cataclysm, this calamity, but then he also links this idea about the reverse order of creation. So he reminds us, oh, is it okay for God to do this? I don't know if people in the 7th century B.C. thought this way, but certainly we do. Is God good since he's going to do something like this and allow that to take place and even be the one who does it? Is God good? Is God loving? But wait a minute. If God created things in a certain order and God's going to destroy things in a certain order, He's a righteous God because he made it all in the first place. He's the one who created it. He is the one who can evaluate it accurately. And he's also the one who can destroy it if he wants to do that. He is the legitimate judge because he made it. And since he made it, he owns it. As I was studying for this message, I thought about my childhood friend, Jimmy Rupakis, who lived on 4 Sally Street in Bloomingdale, New Jersey. And his mother would oftentimes be disappointed with him, and she would say these words to him when she was angry at him. She said, Jimmy, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. And I remember thinking, man, I'm sure glad my mother never said that to me, but... It's still true, you know. Of course, that's not really technically true for parents. We don't own our children. We're stewards over them. But God made us, and he owns us. In fact, Paul chimes in on this and says, you are not your own. Remember, who made you and who owns your even physical body? I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. And so God is the righteous judge for a lot of reasons, but at least from Zephaniah's perspective, I think it's pretty safe to say, as this thought enters the mind of many people who read it, as I read commentaries and hitting my mind too as well, God is the righteous judge because he created the world and everything in it. He's a righteous judge, but yet we still struggle. We still struggle with the idea of a loving God doing destruction on this level. We still struggle with that. Well, he will discipline his children and he will punish his enemies. But God, is that really loving? So again, there tend to be, especially in evangelical Christianity, there tend to be two extremes. And I don't know if this is evangelical Christianity, but you could say it's Christianity, maybe with a small c, because there are some who will teach that God is always sweet, and nice and kind and there's pictures of jesus with lambs around him and little children and he's gentle and kind and sweet all the time and that is who jesus is case closed we got him in this box the other extreme is that god is looking for a reason 
any reason to give you a really bad day. God doesn't love you. In fact, God doesn't even like you. And I've heard preachers say that, and these are guys in the evangelical camp too, where they, where they somehow twist Scripture to say that John 3.16 is not what it says it is. My goodness, that's so straightforward. Why complicate something simple? For God so loved the world. Now, it depends a lot on your definition of love. We might be off on that some. But God is, has an other-centered benevolence toward the world. That is exhibit A of the fact that God loves you, is the death of Jesus. And there's lots more too, but that's at least the beginning. And so we have those two extremes within Christendom. God is always, neat, always kind and sweet and nice. And the Old Testament God... Um, we'll come up with some explanation about that, you know, but we'll focus on the gospels and the love of Jesus. But both of those extremes are inaccurate and at best incomplete. You see, there is the dark side of his love to us, the dark side of his love. It's his discipline, but it sure feels like judgment. It sure feels like he's trying to do something bad to us. But yet, it is, it's his love, but yet it's the dark side of love, like the compassion that your surgeon shows to you when he removes the cancerous tumor, when you hear about it from his lips, when he begins the surgical procedure as the anesthesia is applied, and he wishes you the best, maybe even praise with you. And then he removes the tumor and there's the period of recovery, perhaps chemo and radiation. Uh, does this man hate me? Why would he cut into me? Well, it's his profession, but he obviously cares about you. But it, that doesn't feel like love. God's the same way, except on a bigger scale. Someone wrote that he will use the surgeon's knife when he sees a tumor of transgression or a deadly virus sapping our spiritual lives or the cancerous growth of sin. He does not hesitate to deal with us severely. We must learn this fact early on. He loves us when he is subjecting us to spiritual surgery just as much as when he sends us candy and flowers and brings us into the sunshine. I like that. Well done. This writer also goes on to say it was a preacher named Spurgeon who noticed a weather vane that a farmer had on his barn. It was an unusual weather vane, for on it the farmer had the words, God is love. The preacher asked him, do you mean by this that God's love is as changeable as the wind? And the farmer said no to the preacher as he shook his head. I do not mean that God's love changes and shifts like that. I mean that whichever way the wind blows, God is love. Amen? It's true. It's a fact. 
He is a father who course corrects and disciplines us, and we're the kid who does not like to receive that timeout or that spanking, if you're from my generation, <sighs> or that paddle, if you're from even the previous generation. <laughs> We don't like that. Of course we don't like it. But it's the best thing that our Father can do for us because He loves us. He wants to protect us and He wants to provide for us. But we've morphed and twisted and distorted the very definition of one of the most important words in any language, love. Love is not just kindness and compassion. It is also discipline and course correction. It's both and. It's not just one or the other. So today, it may be the soft wind from the south that he brings to blow across your life, for he loves you. But tomorrow, he may let the cold blasts from the north blow over your life. And if he does, he still loves you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your love we're sorry, we deeply apologize for distorting it, or at least our interpretation and application of that attribute of yours. I pray that we will allow ourselves to be corrected, that we will make the proper adjustments in our perceptions and our interpretations of the trials and hardships and disappointments and roadblocks that you put in front of us so we pray lord that we'll change we don't want you to change we'll be the ones who adjust to what truth is thank you for communicating through your prophet zephaniah Uh, from the get-go it's all already quite amazing what he has written and so father help us uh, to understand the rest of it and just as importantly not just understand it but be a doer of it too we pray this in the name of jesus Amen.